Good evening, everyone, and welcome. So happy to have this chance to welcome you to our Screwtape Letters class, even though we can't be together in person, but we are going to dive into the delights of this book just the same this evening. And as usual, I wanted to start off with a little bit of music and see if you can recognize what this might be, and then we'll talk about why it might tie into what we're doing. So here it comes. So that was a beautiful hymn that you may or may not know called What Wondrous Love Is This? It's actually an American hymn 
uh, dating probably around the year 1810, 1811, something like that, and one that Lewis might possibly have known, but uh, didn't choose, choose it as one that he would know, but instead because of the subject matter, which is love. So like last week's letter, the letter this week deals with the topic of love and marriage, but focuses particularly on the wondrous nature of God's love. So we will get to that in just a minute, but let's begin by saying together the verse that we start with every week. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, and with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. One of the great things about this verse is that it is most certainly one that we can see the truth of in the midst of this crisis that we are experiencing at the moment. And it is one of those things where spiritual warfare becomes real in a way that we don't usually anticipate when all of the props of our lives are pulled out from under us unexpectedly. So again, focusing on why study the screw tape letters today, lessons on understanding the battle. I think when we find ourselves in the midst of a crisis like the current one, we become much more aware that we are in a battle. And therefore, the next reason we're studying becomes even more important about how to think Christianly and develop a Christian worldview. We talked way back in the first Screwtape letter about how Screwtape wants us to focus on real life. And by that, Screwtape means all of the things that our culture and the media want to throw at us. And we are probably many of us feeling like we're under a tidal wave of that right now uh, with all of this news and panic and anxiety and all of that. And this is a time where thinking Christianly is particularly important in reminding ourselves of the foundations of our faith and our worldview. And then lessons on the psychology of temptation, habits to cultivate that deepen our faith in Christ and living a boldly Christian life. Times like these are times where living boldly our faith is even more important because many people are asking ultimate questions in a way that they never would because of this pandemic. And those of us who know Jesus have 
something to offer to this world that is so very much without hope in this particular juncture. So again, on the importance of habits, there's that great quotation from letter 13, let him do anything but act. No amount of piety in his imagination and affections will harm us if we can keep it out of his will. As one of the humans has said, active habits are strengthened by repetition, but passive ones are weakened. The more often he feels without acting, the less he will ever be able to act, and in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. Habits are so important and are a subtext that goes all through this book. And as we, many of us, find ourselves with some time on our hands that we didn't expect to have, it is a great time to be able to put into practice some of these habits that we may not have used so far. So jumping to some of the habits to annoy the devil that we've seen in previous letters, back in letter 13, as soon as you become aware you have restrayed, repent and return to the Lord. This whole idea of making sure that we keep short accounts and that when we mess up uh, and we fail and we sin, that we repent and return to God. Secondly, embrace real pleasures that focus your heart and mind on beauty, truth, and goodness. This is especially important, I think, in times like these where we are very prone to fall into anxiety and thinking the way the world thinks. And so setting our minds on beauty, truth, and goodness, the things of God's kingdom, is very salutary in these moments. Thirdly, cultivate those pleasures and gifts that are part of God's design for you. This is a time where we can do that because we have the time for that cultivation. Fourthly, avoid seeking after worldly trends and the fashions at the expense of what you truly love. More on that later tonight because that figures in letter 19 as well. Fifth, be proactive in forming new habits based upon repentance rather than wallowing in self-absorption. I don't want to say too much about wallowing in self-absorption, but there is sure a lot of that going on right now. And it is uh, not particularly productive for anyone, but it is an area where we need to watch ourselves to make sure we don't fall into that. And then truths about spiritual warfare from letter 13, God loves you enormously as an individual. And the more that you lean into your relationship with God, the more you will truly become your authentic self. Habits from letter 14, practice daily and hourly dependence on God. Cultivate and practice true humility, a radical focus on God and others rather than yourself. Again, this crisis presents a great opportunity for that, for checking in on other people, for writing letters, for sending encouraging texts, all those kinds of things that take our eyes off of ourselves. Thirdly, avoid narcissism, especially wallowing, there's that word again, and self-contempt and selfish malaise. Fourth, practice joyful celebration of wonder in others, in nature, in life that leads to gratitude. Nature is a great gift. And when we are in this 
season of springtime where there's new life bursting all around us. It is a great time to practice joyful celebration of wonder. And with that, the fifth habit, cultivate a high appreciation of the doctrine of creation. That all of this beauty is not some random accident from the cosmic goo, but it is the fine design of a beautiful creator. Habits to annoy the devil from letter 15, consciously reject tortured fear and stupid confidence as states of mind. Again, very apt in this present moment. Attend to two things only, eternity and the present. Worrying about the future is not helpful. And that is one of the chief strategies in letter 15. We want to enjoy the moment that we have and also to remember that we are built for eternity. Thirdly, proactively live in the present, the only place where freedom and actuality are offered. Cultivate gratitude and love and be wary of fear, avarice, lust, and unhealthy ambition. Work hard for the good of posterity, but trust God for the results and dwell in the moment with patience and gratitude. Pray for virtues to meet what challenges may lie ahead and embrace natural happiness as a good thing. And as we've said before, that letter ends with that quotation from Screwtape that just kind of says it all. But after all, why should the creature be happy? Every moment of happiness that we have annoys the heck out of the devil. So therefore, we should cultivate and embrace natural happiness, the little joys and pleasures of each moment. Moving to letter 16, which was that beautiful, powerful letter about the church, commit to faithful attendance and involvement in a church. It may be hard to attend right now, but you can certainly attend online worship, if nothing else, and look for ways to be involved even while we can't be together as a group. Cultivate humility and a teachable spirit while seeking to build New Testament community. Third, seek after the whole counsel of God with a high view of scripture. Fourth, encourage clergy leadership that weds the proclamation of true biblical belief and Christian love. And this is really true for all of us who seek to follow Jesus Christ. We need to learn what it means to speak the truth, to know the truth deeply, the truth rooted in the scriptures about Jesus and the kingdom of God. But we also need how to frame that with Christian love so that we are speaking the truth in love, something our culture so desperately needs. And then fifth, hold fast to truth, but lightly to preferences in essentials unity, in non-essentials diversity, in all things charity. And then from letter 17, practice regular self-examination with respect to the seven deadly sins. We are, of course, still in the season of Lent, that great and ancient season of penitence and self-examination. 
And as we've said for years and years, the church used the seven deadly sins as a tool for self-examination, as we look for evidence of pride, envy, anger, sloth, avarice, gluttony, and lust in our own lives. That is very much out of vogue right now. We are all self-actualizing according to the culture, and sin is an outmoded construct, but not according to scripture. We should uh, definitely be reclaiming some of these ancient Lenten disciplines and self-examination with respect to the seven deadly sins is certainly one of the best. Secondly, practice kindness and self-forgetfulness, especially toward those serving you. Keep fleshly appetites in check and do not pursue them as an end in itself. These fleshly appetites are things that can sneak up on us and so we need to be aware of them. Fourthly, cultivate equanimity and good humor, especially in stressful situations. Anyone out there feeling stressed by all of this? Uh, this is a great time for Christians to model Christ-like behavior that speaks loudly into our culture. Fifth, practice generosity in your actions and with your possessions. Again, this is a great time to do that, for look, to look for ways to be generous, to share with those who are in need, particularly in light of this crisis. And then last week from letter 18, practice the countercultural scriptural standard of complete abstinence or unmitigated monogamy. You'll remember letter 18 is all about the feeling of being in love and the emphasis that that feeling should be the basis of all relationship and sexual decisions. And Screwtape really encourages that because if we get everything just based on these feelings, we can completely unhinge love and sex and marriage from what the scriptures teach. Second habit, adopt an other-focused paradigm of love that refuses to act as if love is a zero-sum game. You'll remember in that letter that Screwtape says that really there's only so much to go around, and so if one of us gets more, then somebody else has to get less. It's just like as if love were a pie, the bigger slice that you get, somebody else is going to get left out. That, of course, has absolutely nothing to do with the scriptural concept of love, that the more that we love, then more love is produced as a result of that. The Trinity has been de described as a fountain of love at the very center of the universe. And that is a concept that Screwtape just cannot get his head around. Third, resist the cultural understanding that believes that feelings of being in love are the foundation of marriage. Now, let me hasten to add, there's nothing wrong with being in love. That's a good thing. But the problem is that in our culture, we have redefined that to mean a sort of uh, sentimental feeling or obsession or infatuation. And the problem with that as a foundation is that those feelings are fickle and they change. Whereas scripture tells us that love is an act of the will. It is a commitment. 
And that is why the marriage vows talk about things like for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, all those kinds of things that are not based on feelings, but are based on commitment. Fourth, uphold the virtue of chastity rather than using feelings of being in love as an excuse for serial promiscuity. Chastity is a virtue, but it's not something you hear talked about or praised in our culture. But in fact, in the scriptures, it is upheld and it is a virtue that we need to honor in the body of Christ. And then fifthly, cultivate and practice a biblical understanding of love. And of course, Jesus tells us that we are to love the way that Jesus loved us. Jesus tells us that as the Father loved Jesus, so Jesus has loved us, and so we should love one another. This is a self-giving, self-sacrificial love, that agape that we've talked about, that will change the world if it gets unleashed um, from the bonds of the church. So that brings us to Donat's letter, letter 19. So let me read that for us. My dear Wormwood, I've been thinking very hard about the question in your last letter. If, as I have clearly shown, all selves are by their very nature in competition, and therefore the enemy's idea of love is a contradiction in terms, what becomes of my reiterated warning that he really loves the human vermin and really desires their freedom and continued existence? I hope, my dear boy, you have not shown my letters to anyone. Not that it matters, of course. Anyone would see that the appearance of heresy into which I have fallen is purely accidental. By the way, I hope you understood, too, that some apparently uncomplimentary references to Slubgob were purely jocular. I really have the highest respect for him. And of course, some things I said about not shielding you from the authorities were not seriously meant. You can trust me to look after your interests, but do keep everything under lock and key. The truth is, I slipped by mere carelessness into saying that the enemy really loves the humans. That, of course, is an impossibility. He is one being. They are distinct from him. Their good cannot be his. All his talk about love must be a disguise for something else. He must have some real motive for creating them and taking so much trouble about them. The reason one comes to talk as if he really had this impossible love is our utter failure to out that real motive. What does he stand to make out of them? That is the insoluble question. I do not see that it can do any harm to tell you that this very problem was a chief cause of our father's quarrel with the enemy. When the creation of man was first mooted, and when, even at that stage, the enemy freely confessed that he foresaw a certain episode about a cross, our father very naturally sought an interview and asked for an explanation. The enemy gave no reply except to produce the cock and bull story about disinterested love, which he has been circulating ever since. This our father naturally could not accept. 
he implored the enemy to lay his cards on the table and gave him every opportunity. He admitted that he felt a real anxiety to know the secret. The enemy replied, I wish with all my heart that you did. It was, I imagine, at this stage in the interview that our father's disgust at such an unprovoked lack of confidence caused him to remove himself an infinite distance from the presence with a suddenness which has given rise to the ridiculous enemy story that he was forcibly thrown out of heaven. Since then, we have begun to see why our oppressor was so secretive. His throne depends on the secret. Members of his faction have frequently admitted that if ever we came to understand what he means by love, the war would be over and we should re-enter heaven. And there lies the great task. We know that he cannot really love. Nobody can. It doesn't make sense. If we could only find out what he is really up to, Hypothesis after hypothesis has been tried, and still we can't find out. Yet we must never lose hope. More and more complicated theories, fuller and fuller collections of data, richer rewards for researchers who make progress, more and more terrible punishments for those who fail. All this, pursued and accelerated to the very end of time, cannot surely fail to succeed. You complain that my last letter does not make it clear whether I regard being in love as a desirable state for a human or not. But really, Wormwood, that is the sort of question one expects them to ask. Leave them to discuss whether love or patriotism or celibacy or candles on altars or teetotalism or education are good or bad. Can't you see there's no answer? Nothing matters at all except the tendency of a given state of mind in given circumstances to move a particular patient at a particular moment nearer to the enemy or nearer to us. Thus, it would be quite a good thing to make the patient decide that love is good or bad. If he's an arrogant man with a contempt for the body really based on delicacy but mistaken by him for purity, and one who takes pleasure in flouting what most of his fellows approve, by all means let him decide against love, instill into him an overweening asceticism, and then, when you have separated his sexuality from all that might humanize it, weigh in on him with it in some much more brutal and cynical form. If, on the other hand, he is an emotional, gullible man, feed him on minor poets and fifth-rate novelists of the old school until you have made him believe that love is both irresistible and somehow intrinsically meritorious. This belief is not much help, I grant you, in producing casual unchastity, but it is an incomparable recipe for prolonged, noble, romantic, tragic adulteries, ending, if all goes well, in murders and suicides. Failing that, it can be used to steer the patient into a useful marriage. For marriage, though the enemy's invention has its uses, 
There must be several young women in your patient's neighborhood who would render the Christian life intensely difficult to him if only you could persuade him to marry one of them. Please send me a report on this when you next write. In the meantime, get it quite clear in your own mind that the state of falling in love is not in itself necessarily favorable either to us or to the other side. It is simply an occasion which we and the enemy are both trying to exploit. Like most of the other things which humans are excited about, such as health and sickness, age and youth, or war and peace, it is from the point of view of the spiritual life mainly raw material. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Once again, this is a great letter that is full of all sorts of interesting things. And one of the most amusing of the things in this letter is the hints in that first paragraph that Screwtape has perhaps gotten himself in trouble by saying out loud some things he shouldn't have when he admitted that God seems to really love the little human vermin. And then when he goes on a rail against Slubgob for having let standards fall in the training college. And you can see Screwtape trying to backtrack from those comments. And we will see a little later on in the book whether he actually gets in trouble for them. But the main thrust of the letter is all about this idea of love. The love that animates the universe, that is at its very center, which was absolutely incomprehensible to Satan. That God had made love the center of the universe, even though he knew that it would lead to the cross of Jesus Christ. And even in the midst of that, he decided that it was worth it. Satan, on the other hand, cannot see that at all and believes that there must be some ulterior motive at work. And Screwtape and all of his minions are at work to try to figure out what God's real agenda is. So, habits to annoy the devil from letter 19. First, seek to understand God as the creator of love and daily abide in the love of God. We can see from this letter how absolutely annoyed Screwtape is by this whole idea of God's love and for humans to be responding to it. So the more that we understand that wondrous love of God that that initial song was all about, uh, the depths of it, the heights of it, the more that we cultivate a sense of wonder about that love, it will make Screwtape and the devil crazy. And when we abide in that love, it is that impenetrable cloud that surrounds the believer that makes Satan and his minions very upset. Scripture that relates to this point first from 1 John 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And then from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, As the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Abide is that wonderful old-fashioned word we talked about a few weeks ago. 
And the idea of abide is that that is where your home is. It's, you may range out from it, but it's what you always come back to. And I love this image from John 15 that our home, the architecture, uh, the house that we dwell in is God's love. And screw tape makes it clear that that's a protection for us that makes the devil crazy when we dwell in it. And because of the world we live in, which is so full of self-interest and trying to get ahead at other people's expense, this sort of disinterested, self-giving love uh, is so very countercultural. And as we talked about before, even the pagans in the early days of Christianity uh, wrote in some of the works of history, look at these Christians, see how they love one another. My friends, what a wonderful thing for us to reclaim in our day. The second habit, share God's love with others, especially those who do not believe or do not understand it. None of us who follow Jesus Christ today would be in that position if someone had not shared their faith and their love for God with us. We are all too often embarrassed to share what is the greatest good news and love that the world has ever known. Scripture tells us in Luke's gospel these words straight from the mouth of Jesus. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. This is not the way of the world. The way of the world is to get even. The way of the world is to hate your enemies and plot their downfall. But Jesus tells us to love our enemies, something that can come only from our faith in Christ. And then from 1 Peter, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sorry, that's Romans, Romans 5.8. That love that God shows us, dying for us, giving his life for us, while we were yet sinners. As Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And then from 1 Peter, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. I love that word earnestly. That means with intention, with deliberation, and with action. And it is about as far removed from sloppy feelings of love that don't issue into action as you could possibly imagine. But that's the standard to which Christ calls us to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The third habit, resolve to take any state of mind or feeling and experience it through the perspective of the kingdom of God so as to grow closer to God. As Screwtape says, there's so many things that are not good or bad in themselves, but the question is what we do with them. What do we do with those feelings of love what do we do with those decisions that have to be made? And as Screwtape says, every choice of what we do 
and how we choose to interpret these things leads us either closer to our father below or closer to Screwtape's enemy, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, let us be those who choose to frame every thought, every emotion, everything that comes our way through a kingdom perspective. Because when we do that, God will do what Romans 8.28 says, that he will work all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. There is this beautiful verse from 2 Corinthians 10. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. I love that imagery of taking every thought captive. It's as if you were on a hunt and you saw your prey and you went with everything you had to go and capture that prey. And we're to do the same thing with the thoughts and feelings that come through our lives, to take them captive and frame them in the perspective of the kingdom of God. And then from Galatians, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. And of course, what that is telling us is that if we are seeking to serve Christ with our whole heart, then he is the one whose approval we are seeking. We're not seeking accolades from the world or a big pat on the back from the culture, but we're seeking to please Christ. And what that means is doing what he says. And following right up on that from Colossians 3, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. This is a beautiful verse that we need to reclaim in the front of our consciousness because so often today you find even Christians who are unmotivated and are not doing their best and forget that in everything that we do, we have the opportunity to glorify God. There's a beautiful quotation from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. where he's talking about how we do our work. And he says, even if you are a street sweeper, you should sweep that street as if you were Michelangelo painting a painting, that you're doing it for the glory of God. And then the fourth habit, understand marriage is God's invention only to be pursued in a Christian context and not just because of feeling and love. Again, this is something that is so important that we touched on in letter 18, but it's the idea that marriage is one of the things that is a gift from God, that God is the author and the inventor of marriage, that it is marriage between a man and a woman and it is a metaphor that God uses throughout the Old Testament and New Testament for the relationship of Christ to his church. You see it way back in the very beginning with Adam and Eve, and then right at the very end with the new Jerusalem coming down in the book of Revelation, adorned as a bride for her husband. 
This imagery of marriage runs all through scripture, and we in the 20th century and 21st century have done great violence to the notion of Christian marriage by trying to turn it into something that it is not. We've tried to take marriage, something that the church has historically regarded as a sacrament, and make it into something that is all about our own feelings. Part of what is so interesting is that in the early church, uh, you didn't have this idea of people going out and choosing to marry people who were not Christians, who did not share their faith. Uh, there are some scripture verses about people who are married to unbelievers, but that is because of the gospel coming into their lives after they were already married. The chief scripture that we need to pay great attention to is from 2 Corinthians 6. It says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And this doesn't mean that there are people who are not Christians are evil, bad people. But what it does mean is that for a Christian, Marriage is one of those foundational institutions that is all about your worldview and your values. And to be united in marriage with someone who doesn't share those is incomprehensible from the point of Scripture. So that's something that we need to take very, very seriously. And so often you find people who may be strong in their faith and they start dating somebody who isn't a Christian, and then all of the rationalizations begin to kick in, and the feelings of being in love, and ultimately those feelings very often and sadly trump the truth of the scriptures, and people end up being just what this verse says not to be, which is unequally yoked. There also is a great verse from Proverbs about this. Many claim to have unfailing love, but a faithful person who can find. The righteous lead blameless lives. Blessed are their children after them. What this says is that unfailing love, that is feelings, is not something that you can find because feelings are going to fade. And the only sure foundation for marriage is shared faith in Jesus Christ. So the devil is hard at work in letter 19, seeking to undermine all of the understanding of what love truly means for the Christian, what love truly means in the scriptures, and the whole idea of love as the motivating force behind the universe and all creation. It is a breathtaking thing to step back and think about God's amazing love, that fountain of love that exists in the Trinity and overflows throughout all creation, pulsing at the center of all that is good and true and beautiful and life-giving. And of course, the idea of a fountain is that if you see the fountain and you hear it and you can imagine its cooling waters, you must draw near to it. And the more that you draw near, you begin to be splashed by that water and it changes you. And that's what God desires for us. Satan, of course, and Screwtape cannot understand that. They think it's all some kind of big shell game and that they can't figure out 
what the actual end game for God is. It's very sad because that point of view that Satan has is one that is very often true of people in our culture. The good news of God's love is just too good to be true until they see it with flesh on, with people who follow Jesus, who love them in such a way that they are forced finally to begin to consider that it might actually be true. So let's close tonight with our quotation from Screwtape Letter Aid. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Let us pray. O Lord, we confess to you how full of our own self-importance we are, how prone we are to rely on our feelings, whether feelings of being in love or feelings of being right or feelings of uh, having been put upon by others. Lord, we pray that you would deliver us from that and that we would begin to see with kingdom eyes, that we would see your heart of love for this world, that we would see each person that we encounter as made in your image, no matter how much the distressing disguise of sin may mar that image, and that we would seek to love those people that you put in our path. Lord, we pray that you would help us to have a robust understanding of what you mean in your word by Christian marriage, and that we would live into that. Lord, we pray that you would help us to meditate and concentrate and to daily abide in your love, that our sense of wonder at your love for us and the love which shows and pulses through all creation would move us to praise your name and to worship you. Lord, we give you thanks that you gave us the greatest model of love in your son, Jesus Christ, his death on the cross for our salvation and his glorious resurrection to open to us the way of eternal life. Lord, we thank you and bless you and pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.